0: do some fun stuff during our sermon day. It's our family service Sunday. If you didn't notice that, all of our children are here. Uh, those of you with very small children, if you need to walk around, visit the playground during our time together, that's fine. Um, we're, all, we're, all, we're all for that. We are having a potluck luncheon afterwards. Uh, if you didn't bring food, uh, we've got food. Uh, the church is providing some as well, so I hope you'll stick around. It's going to be fantastic. Uh, every fifth Sunday we do this, and uh, we love to be able to have a special uh, family service Sunday. And uh, that's always a blessing. Uh, I want to just start off, uh, I was going to have some students share, but some of them, one of them's in India and some of them are all around, scattered about. Uh, so I asked them to, uh, to text me some of the things that impacted them through the revolution of love. For those of you who don't know what we're talking about, uh, the teenagers, the week of VBS, they served... Uh, at, not only at VBS in the morning, but went out in the afternoons and, and involved with, did some uh, demolition in downtown Long Grove. They did some serving at Matthew Homes. We went to Feed My Starving Children. We went to the, to the mall and, and talked to people about the Lord. And uh, we focused on the character of God all week long and who he is. And the, the, uh, the concept was this. Uh, I don't know if you could see the back of my shirt. Some of the students are wearing a shirt today. But uh, our theme verse was Galatians 5.13 which says use your freedom to serve one another in love. The actual verse says brothers and sisters you were called to be free. uh, But don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh, instead serve one another, uh, use your freedom to serve one another humbly in love. And uh, that was our emphasis and that is our emphasis, really should be our emphasis as a church. Uh, what we do. Uh, And it's interesting that the Apostle Paul said, serve one another. He could have just said serve one another, but he said serve one another humbly in love. If we don't do it out of love and if we don't do it with humility, uh, it really isn't going to go anywhere and it probably is not going to last. So, But I just thought I'd uh, start off by just sharing some testimonies. And as I'm doing that, if you have your Bibles today, we're going to be looking at Philippians 2, Cindy started us off with that, and uh, Philippians 2, 1 to 11. And uh, this is from uh, Bianca, one of our students. She said this, During the week of VBS and ROL, we learned about some of the main attributes of God, such as love, compassion, and grace. And when we studied compassion, God opened my eyes to what it truly means. I always thought being compassionate uh, meant that you were just another. It was just another word for being kind or being nice to others, but as we learned that it actually means to suffer with, it totally changed my perspective. It doesn't mean to have pity and be kind. It means that you are empathetic towards the people around and you are kind and and sensitive in a way that allows you to suffer with them. When you are compassionate, it allows you to be patient and have an understanding that you must be slow to judge, slow to be angry. Every attribute of God leads to the other, and the truly, incredible how, uh, and, and truly incredible how, it's truly incredible how complex they all are and yet how simple learning what compassion actually meant. It helped me with handling the kids at Crafts during VBS who would get angry and upset often or frustrated because I was able to be compassionate towards them God gave me the strength to be patient and not get irritated or annoyed with those around me Being truly compassionate like Jesus is something I strive to be but I believe it is not a skill you can constantly have without God and I'm so grateful he opened my eyes so I could truly see the great the greatest of his compassion toward us Isn't that awesome I mean, that's just, a, that, that could be our sermon today, really. In fact, I, I, could, I can go right into my little illustration here. Philippians 2, 1 and 2 talks about that, that he starts off with saying that, you know what, if you have any encouragement from being in Christ, any tenderness, any compassion, he says, be unified. And then in that unity, have humility. Consider others better than yourselves. Uh, so that's, that's just a testimony from one of our students. Some of our students went out, many of our students went out and did mall evangelism. Uh, another one of our students said this during mall evangelism. My group met a Polish family a father and daughter 13 or 14 years old We got to talk to them about the Lord and the gospel a little bit But they didn't really know about it and they didn't really speak English So it was a little bit it was a little difficult But one thing that stood out to me during the conversation was how the daughter said she went to a church in Poland And they would condemn and discriminate against people uh, with with who had different uh, d- different beliefs and would push them away rather than live on, love on them and bring them to the Lord. We tried to explain it as a misconception in Poland and probably happens to a lot, in a lot more places. I think we have to express our love more to people who are different from us and show them we don't discriminate or try to push them away from the Lord, but actually bring them to the Lord. This student said that they, that they think that God has taught them to share the gospel and the Lord with others more. He taught me to preach the truth to others and to share who he really is. So many people have a misconception about who God is. And uh, one of the things that helps us to overcome that is just by engaging them. Uh, This one comes all the way from India, from our brother Jacob Varghese. He said, so at the Mall Evangelism, we ran into a lot of different groups of people with a lot of different backgrounds. The vast majority of the people we talked to were Christian or had been in the past but one story that stuck out to me was when uh, we went up to a girl, maybe 14 or 15, who was struggling with anxiety and was on the fence with Christianity. Somewhere about five minutes into our conversation, her mother and grandmother had come over and we had started talking with them. As well, and we had found out that the girl's mother was an atheist. While her father was very religious and that they were divorced, I found it interesting because of the two different ways she must have grown up and how she had a situation where her parents were oppositely divided and their daughter being stuck between the two. And that was, that, that's what really kind of stuck out to me. He says, I feel God has taught me how I, how I have been fortunate to have grown up like this in a good church with a Christian family because there are and will be others who don't have that. And he calls us to go to these people and show them the love of Christ and what it means to be a part of the family of Christ. Praise the Lord. God is at work, and he's at work in our church, and he's at work in our students' lives. Would you join me as we pray one more time? Father, I thank you. Uh, I thank you for the students who were involved with Revolution of Love. I thank you for the leaders. I thank you for all those who helped with VBS uh, just a a week or so ago. Lord, I ask in Jesus' name that you would uh, help us to continue to be people that are so connected to you that you would show us how much you love us, how much you suffer with us, you have suffered with us through, through your son Jesus, so that we can suffer with others and share the love and the truth of others and not push them away. Lord, I pray that uh, as we look at your word today that you would give us a, a heart that is hungry for your truth and for your love and your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen, Amen. All right. So let's dive into Philippians 2, 1 to 11, and uh, if you have your Bibles, I hope you'll turn there, uh, go there on your phone. I'm going to be reading from the NIV. By the way, keep our uh, pastor in prayer this, uh, this weekend. He is somewhere out in the Boundary Waters on a father and son camping trip, so Pastor Dell and, and Noah and Isaac. He's uh, also with uh, Jeff, and Joe, uh, Jeff Clow from uh, Faith Acres, some of you know him. So they'll, uh, they'll be back hopefully midweek. All right, let's read the passage together. Philippians 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in Spirit And of one mind. Now, let me give you a little bit of a background here. Paul is writing this literally from a jail cell. He's in jail for preaching the gospel in Rome, most likely, and uh, he's probably chained to a guard. And the book of Philippians, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, is just amazing. It's filled with joy, contentment. He talks about the secret of contentment. And here, he's anticipating that the church in Philippi is going to experience persecution, they already are. And usually, when times get hard, what happens in the church? We fight, we bicker, we divide, we go in different directions. And so, right off the bat, he's calling them to unity, okay? And uh, it, 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 he says, therefore, basically from Philippians 1, he's basically saying, you know what? Because God is in control, God put me here, the gospel is advancing, God loves you, the work that he began in you, he's gonna continue it, he's faithful. You know what, therefore, and some people in the first class conditional cause, it could say, therefore, since you have encouragement from being united with Christ, since you have comfort from his love, since you're sharing in the spirit of God, and since you have tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. And so right off the bat, he says, you know what, this is, it's about unity, and it's a choice, but it's a result of connecting with God. And uh, I brought some illustrations with me for our uh, children today. But uh, you know what? Sometimes illustrations are better for all of us here. And uh, some of you have seen me do this before, but it's, it's helpful, I think, to just see this. Uh, you can't give what you have not received, okay? And the idea with Christianity is God calls us to be selfless and to give, Because he himself has given us already. Uh, He has done that. The tenderness, the encouragement. And so the point here is that that he wants to give us. Now, can I get a volunteer to come up here and just hold a cup? I I uh, I, I promise not to get you wet. All you need to do is hold a cup. Thank you, Mr. Thank you, Benny. Okay, so this cup represents you. Judge me by my size, do you? I like your shirt. That's interesting. Yeah, it's like uh, David and Goliath. All right. So, so here's the idea. The idea here is that God wants to pour into us so that we can pour into others. Okay. That's the idea. Uh, we overflow. And uh, if you have any tenderness, any any compassion that you've received from God, okay. And God's, God's um, supply is ever ending. Okay. So we could do this all day. All right. Let's see how far we can go now. We're going to get a little, get, yeah, we don't want to get here. Yeah, there, there's the idea. All right. Now, I don't know if uh, my microphone will allow me to do this, but uh, is there anybody hot this morning? What? All right, we got a hose here to hose you down. Okay. Anybody Ready? All right, uh, No, <laughs> these guys are over here, yeah, get me wet. <laughs> at VBS, at right, games, that's kind of what everybody wanted to do was just to get wet. Um, thank you for not wetting me right now, uh, Benny. Uh, but this is just the idea, and I just want you guys to see a visual, okay? As, as God spills, fills us, you know. Now, the scripture says be kind and compassionate towards one another just as Christ forgave you. And I think a lot of times what happens is, is you and I, we don't put ourselves in a position to receive from God. You can empty that and throw it on the ground there, yeah. Um, we don't put ourselves in a position to receive from God. And if we're not receiving his forgiveness and his love, it's going to be really hard for us. Go ahead, you could turn it over. No, you could go over, yeah. We're not going to have a lot to give, okay? And so my, my question to you is how open are you to receiving God's love for you? And his, his forgiveness. Jesus told a story about a guy who was forgiven a huge debt. He, was, he owed like, like millions of dollars to this king. And uh, he, couldn't, he couldn't pay it. And he comes to the king and he begs and he begs. He says, please, please. And in those days, the, the, in, that, in that, 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 that situation, his whole family would be just thrown in jail and they, uh, to pay this debt. And uh, the king is compassionate and gracious and forgives the man. And as soon as the guy gets out, what does he do? he goes out and finds somebody who owes him $10, $15 and says, hey, give it to me, and chokes him and says, I'm going to throw you in jail because you didn't, you know, pay me. Well, the guards of the king hear about this, and they're like, well, um, you know, what's the deal here? I, you know, and they bring him in before the king. And the king is like, I forgave you this immense debt of millions of dollars, and you can't even forgive somebody 5 or $10? And you say, well, what's going on there? What's going on there is that this guy never, he was forgiven by the king, but he never received it in his heart. And Jesus said, unless we forgive our brothers and sisters from the heart, we will never, we will not be forgiven because that shows that we have never received God's forgiveness. Let's do this one more time, Benny. I think he got the idea. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Way to go. Yeah, you could drink it. I don't know if it's from the sink, so I don't know how good that is here. How about a hand for Benny? So the practical question is, what are you doing to receive God's love and his compassion? What are you doing to put yourself in a position to do that? You know, many times I think what our students were encountering when we were talking to people in the mall, they had been hurt by religion. They had been hurt by others. They were dealing with anxiety, with depression. We we met people, uh, one person who was, you know, grew up Catholic and was told that the Catholic Church is corrupt and just kind of gave up his whole faith because based on that when he was a teenager. And uh, what happened was there was a closing of the heart to be able to receive God's love, his encouragement from being united with Christ, his comfort, uh, common sharing. So my encouragement to you today, our first point really is, what are you doing to open up your heart to receive God's Word? And I, and, I, and I say that lightly, but I say that very significantly. I mean, some of us come to church, and this is the only time we hear God's Word. And we're not even looking at it. We don't even have it in our hand, let alone take notes. And so I encourage you to be not only in God's Word on Sunday, but in being God's Word and with God's people. Notice how he says... Uh, sharing in the spirit comfort from his love any encouragement from being united with Christ I don't know, if, I don't know how people can do Christianity without being in a life group where they're you know, doing life together with someone else and I know that's painful I know it's messy but if you're not in a life group and you're not regularly you know, have people supporting you and encouraging you you're not going to experience this and what's going to happen is you're not going to be able to give to others in a supernatural way This is supernatural. It's not natural. It's counterintuitive. Let's keep going. In verse 3 and verse 4, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Now, what's going on here? Well, first of all, Uh, Let me give you a little phrase here, and this kind of summarizes what I just said. In Christ, you can give up all you have because in Christ, you have everything you need. Let me say that again. In Christ, you can give up everything you have because in Christ, you have everything you need. Now, if you're not experiencing that and believe that and know that, then it's going to be hard to surrender here. And when you say, what are you surrendering? I'm surrendering. when you are humility and you're being selfless, you're not saying other people are better than you. That translation is not accurate. What you are saying is that other people uh, at times, you're going to make a choice to make their interests more important than yours. All right? That's kind of what's going on here. Rivalry is competition. We're always angling to make sure our needs are met and that we're getting recognition. Those of you who are married, we're always thinking about how well the other person is doing at meeting our needs and giving us what we think we deserve. That's not healthy, okay? Uh, The word conceit here really is not a great translation. The King James uses a better word, actually, and that word is literally translated vain glory or useless glory. Uh, The idea that we pursued uh, things for our own glory, for our own, you know, benefit, uh, we deserve better things and are always making sure, uh, you know, Paul says to do nothing out of, from either of these mo- motivations, but in humility, count your others more significant than yourselves. I like Rick Warren's quote, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking, it, it, it's, it's thinking of yourself less. In other words, it's, it's not like, oh, I'm bad, I'm poor, I'm nothing, you know, I, I'm not worth anything. No, it's saying, no, I am worth something, and because of what God has done in me, you know what? I'm going to put other people first. They're more important. I'm going to put their needs first. Uh, Think about what you really deserve and then count others more significant than yourselves. What do you and I deserve? What do you and I deserve? Yeah, (laughs) the wages of sin is death. No one likes to use the four-letter H word, but it's true. We deserve hell, okay? Write this down. I am unworthy of any of the love my spouse gives to me. Whoa, that's so countercultural, so counterintuitive. You won't hear that on Dr. Phil, okay? Because what we do a lot of times in our relationships, and I'm talking in marriage relationships, but in any relationship, is we say, I'm worthy. You need to give me self-love. You need to give me love, okay? Okay? But the foundation of happiness and love, it's, it, it, it's, it's not. When you realize how much of your life is grace, you start to think less about what you need and deserve. You start to love your spouse and others with undeserving love. Why? Because that's what Christ did for you and me. He says, look, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. In humility, I'm going to put other people as value, more valuable. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Why? Because of Christ. Okay? This is what Christ has done for us. You guys remember on the last night before he was betrayed, what Jesus did? He washed the feet of his disciples. And there's an interesting uh, passage there. If you read it in John 13, it says, knowing that everything had been given to him by the Father and that he was loved, knowing that he had a position of power, he literally went and said, okay, I'm going to serve and wash the disciples' feet. And he says, I do this for you because this is what I want you to do for others. This is an example that I set. So just stop and think about that because I think a lot of times we we, we often think that humility is coming out of a place of weakness. You know, it's like, well, I have no other choice but to be humble because I'm poor or because I'm not powerful or because I'm a child, I don't have a lot. But no, if you look at the characteristics of God, and I will say this, one of the attributes of God that we miss is that God is humble. Being humble, what that looks like is being powerful and saying no, I'm going to take and use my power to serve others. I'm going to make a choice to do that, and that's what Jesus, who had the highest place in the universe, voluntarily took the lower place. When you know, you know that when you when you know, you know that in, in Him you've been given the highest place as a gift. You won't be afraid to take the lower place. Because you've tasted of eternal love, you won't be so focused on what others are or not giving you. Somebody once said this, Christian marriage is recognizing the unmerited favor God has shown to you in Christ and showing that same love and unmerited favor to your spouse. You say, my my spouse doesn't deserve my service. Of course they don't. That's the point. You didn't deserve it either from Christ. Notice in verse 3, he says, count or reckon or uh, do nothing. In humility, uh, value others above yourselves. Uh, It means that you see or reckon, you choose to see them that way. Not that they actually are that way. They may not be acting that way, but it's the same word that Paul used when he talked about how Christ sees believers. Christ sees believers as innocent of sin, not because they're innocent of sin. We're all guilty. But because of what he's accomplished for them and credited to them. He says... In the same way that I see you that way, he says, see others that way. Reckon them that way. They are valuable. Serve them. Be humble. Consider their interests more important than your own. You say, well, if I serve them, they'll just take advantage of me. So, in Christ, you're secure enough to do that. Jesus washed Judas's feet. Judas' feet. Was, he knew Judas was going to betray him. Serving people when they don't deserve it is how Jesus changes us. Totally opposite of how the world thinks. The world says you change through punishment. You did something wrong, kids, you're gonna be punished. By the way, the word for discipline is not the same word for punishment. Discipline is training, okay? The purpose that parents show discipline to their kids is to train them. It's not to punish them. The world says you change through punishment. God says you change through grace. Punishment produces fear and selfishness. Grace produces love. Who is God asking you to value uh, above yourself this week? It's not easy, you know. It's not easy to live like this. I know it's not. Humility is the key to unity. I came across a great definition of humility from John Newton. He said, if I ever reach heaven, I expect to find three wonders there. First, to meet some I had not thought to see there. <laughs> wow, I didn't know you'd be here. Second, to miss some I had expected to see there. And third, the greatest wonder of all, to find myself there. Paul begins by contrasting humility with its opposite. opposite selfish ambition, ambition, vanity. Okay? Selfish ambition is what motivates those who sought to take advantage of Paul's imprisonment. It seeks to gain at the expense of others. Humility desires the advance of others at our expense. This is the way Paul felt about the Philippians. This is the way Timothy felt. If we are truly humble, we're not impressed with ourselves, and we're not desperately seeking to enhance our own standing. Uh, One of the illustrations I came across is a doctor uh, a doctor is uh, on lunch break, but he uh, all of a sudden, uh, they're uh, you know they working in the emergency room. It may be their lunch hour, but they're on their way out the door to get something to eat at the restaurant, and an ambulance arrives just as, as they're leaving, bringing in a street person who's overdosed on drugs. Indeed, the person might even be a murderer, yet at that moment, his life is in great peril. Without prompt attention, this man will die. Regardless of his previous sins... Without regard for my desire to eat, if I'm the doctor, I give this man my full attention and seek to provide medical assistance to him. At this moment in time, he is more important than my agenda and my hunger. Humility prompts me to serve others, assigning my interests a lower priority than their needs. Okay? Now, sometimes seeking the best interest of others calls for a rebuke. Sometimes it means that I must say no to a request or a demand. There are many who would like to inform us as to what constitutes their best interests, but we must seek the best interest of our children, but they do not necessarily know or appreciate what this should require of us. So obviously this involves wisdom and surrender to God. All right, let's, where does he ground this? He grounds this in verses 5 through 11. He says, okay, well, why should I do this? Because that's what Christ did. So let's look at that passage real fast. He says, you should have the same attitude toward one another that Christ Jesus had who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. But Jesus emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, by looking like other men, and by sharing in human nature, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As a result, God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now I could stay here for like an hour and preach on this and I know this is our family service so I'm not going to do that. Um, But it's very important. Uh, Over the years people have debated what this means. What does it mean that he emptied himself uh, you know, is Jesus God? And every cult, every, every religion that seeks to um, come against Christianity usually um, takes, the, takes the deity of Christ, Jesus being God, and twists it and says he wasn't God. And sometimes people have said, well, maybe this is, this is what it's saying. What it's actually saying here is that Jesus Christ is fully God and man. He emptied himself uh, of the right to use those privileges as God. You say, oh, how do you know that?" Because we know that he had he he was fully God from other scriptures, and he took on fully being fully human. So, undiminished deity took a uh, to, uh, uh, Jesus Christ is fully God and man. Undiminished deity took on perfect and sinless humanity at the incarnation. We may not be able to fully comprehend this, but it is true. So. Now, it's interesting that you say, well, Tony, who cares? I don't, I don't, I'm not into all that, you know, like that theology. Well, Paul is saying this. If you don't know the theology, then you're not going to be able to live practically. He, he says the call to unity in the church and the call to being humble is based on who Jesus is and what he did. What did he do? He gave up uh, Our Lord Jesus Christ has always existed as the second person of the Godhead. He was actively involved in the creation of the world, John 1, Colossians 1. He existed as God and was fully equal with the Father. Even though he was equal with with the Father, he did not seize this as an opportunity to independently further his own interests. Though equal with God, our Lord Jesus, uh, instead, he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, okay, uh, what he set aside was, was the pursuit of his personal interests that would have been in competition with the father. Someone used the illustration of like somebody like Bill Gates or Elon Musk if they were to become president of the United States. And if they were to do that, some of you are like, oh gosh, no. Uh, <laughs> but if they did that, the, the businessman could seize the power of that office as the opportunity to further their own business interests. Or... Um, they, could do, they could give that up. Uh, they, 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 they could literally um, say, you know, no, I'm not going to do that. A man who runs for office divests himself of his business interests, usually by placing his business in a kind of blind trust that leaves decisions and control to someone else, making it difficult to further his own interests by the misuses of his position in power as a public official. The businessman does not give away all that he owns He simply divests himself of the power to profit from his position. So it was with our Lord's emptying of himself, he did not cease to be God. He divested himself of self-interest so that he could glorify the Father and bring about the salvation of lost sinners. Now, what does it mean that Jesus became humble? Well, in this text, it says of different things. Number one, he left glory. He left the splendor of heaven and he came here to dwell on earth. You and I have no idea what that looks like. I mean, the slightest illustration I can give you is of a chauffeur, somebody who owns a chauffeur and is driving a limousine, and you have all these cars or maybe these sports cars, I don't know what it is that your car fancy is. We were talking to a guy at the, um, uh, at the, at the mall, and he said he has uh, over like 71 cars, you know, and he was talking about how he became a millionaire. Same guy who gave up on God when he was a teenager. And I felt so bad for him because I felt like the story of the, you know, Jesus said, building bigger, bigger barns to store your stuff. And then God says, what, what, what's your soul is demanded of you. But his idea was, you know what, if I just got more and more and more. But if you had all these cars, okay, and then all of a sudden you gave them away and you're riding a broken down bicycle. Okay, that's, that's, that it doesn't, doesn't compare, but it's just giving you an idea of what it meant for Jesus to leave the glory. Number two, he not only left glory, but he becomes a man. And Hebrews says that he, he cried out tears. He wept. Uh, not only was he a man, that he was born to a very poor family. Isaiah 53 says there was nothing about him that was attractive. He was despised by others, okay? And physically, there was nothing about him attractive. So he becomes a man. Um, Hebrews 2 says that he, uh, he became a merciful and faithful high priest to make atonement, but he 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 became like his brothers and sisters in every respect. For since he suffered and was tempted, he's able to help those who are tempted. Our our Lord not only suffered as a man, he suffered by living among men. Think of the agony of living among unbelieving men who were hard-hearted. Even the disciples of Jesus were hard-hearted and slow to believe. At one point in Jesus' ministry, he says, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you? How long must I endure you? Bring him here to me, you know. The Pharisees came and said, uh, you know, give us a sign from heaven. Right after he had multiplied the fishes and the loaves. And Jesus says, why does this generation want a sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given this generation. Even his closest friends failed to grasp what he taught. When he spoke of the crucifixion, they were thinking and arguing about who was going to be the greatest, As he prepared to make the ultimate sacrifices, they were thinking about privileges that they would enjoy in his kingdom. So there's so much of his humbling that we just sometimes don't even realize that the Lord of the universe, John 1 says an interesting phrase, the one who created them came and lived among them, but they did not recognize him and they rejected him. And then finally, he came as the, lo- the Lamb of God who had become sin for us. He came to bear the wrath of God in the place of the lost. He went to death. It says, the scripture says, rather he, he himself made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's the God that we serve. The God that we serve suffers with us. How many of you are familiar with uh, Dr. Peter Singer? Dr. Peter Singer is one of the leading people in bioethics. He's also one of the primary advocates of Planned Parenthood. Uh, He's also one of the primary advocates of euthanasia. Uh, Dr. Peter Singer uh, once wrote this from Princeton University. The only God I could believe in would be a bumbler. How could an omnipotent, omniscient being permit there to be so much suffering in the world? I don't know about you, but if you ever interact on social media, I find many people on Twitter really hammer this argument against God. And if you've lived at all, and if you've visited anywhere, especially in hurting areas of the world, you know that there is a lot of unjust suffering happening in the world. The problem of suffering has always troubled man. Dr. Singer is no different from many others who have found human suffering to be an impenetrable barrier to belief in God. He does not leave room, though, for factors like the fall of man or human sin. And our text puts the problem of pain in an entirely different light. Dr. Singer finds it impossible to believe in an omniscient, all-knowing, omnipotent, all-powerful God who allows the kind of suffering that we see on earth. He cannot bear to think of a God who actively imposes suffering. Our text tells us that God who allows suffering is the same God who endured the greatest suffering ever endured. Our text tells us that the ultimate in suffering, which our Lord Jesus endured in obedience to His Father's will, it's also about the mindset of our Lord that enabled Him to suffer as He did. It's this mindset of humility that every Christian is to possess, and this is what will enable us to set the interests of others above our own. I want to read to you guys a poem that was written a few years ago. It's called The Long Silence, and some of you are ready for The Long Silence here this morning, but... Uh, This is written uh, by someone else, and I just want you to read it because I think it addresses the problem of pain. At the end of time, billions of people were scattered on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them, but some groups near the front talked heatedly, not with a cringing shame, but with belligerence. Can God judge us? How can he know about suffering, snapped a pert brunette. She ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, death. In another group, an African-American lowered his collar. What about this, he demanded, showing an ugly uh, rope burn, lynched for no crime for just being black. In another crowd, a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes Why should I suffer, she said, she murmured. It wasn't my fault. Far out across the plain, there were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he permitted in his world. How lucky God was to live in heaven, where all was sweetened with sweet and light, where there was no weeping or fear, no hunger or hatred. What did God know of all that man had been forced to endure in this world? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. So each of these groups sent forth their leader, chosen because he had suffered most. There was a Jew, an African American, a person from Hiroshima, a horrible deformed arthritic, a thalidomide, a child, a child with severe birth defects, mentally handicapped, In the center of the plane, they consulted with each other, and at last they were ready to present their case. It was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think him out of his mind. When he tries to do it, let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges, be tried by a prejudiced jury and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. At the last, let him see what it means to to be terribly alone. Then let him die. Let him die so that there can be no doubt that he died. Let there be a great host of witnesses to verify it. As each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the throng of people assembled. And when the last had finished pronouncing sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered another word. No one moved. For suddenly all knew that God had already served his sentence. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The good news is is that no matter what you've gone through or what you're going through, we serve a God that suffers with us and that has suffered for us. And he says he'll never leave us nor forsake us. I don't know about you, but I want to receive that love. I want to receive that love. I don't want to be hardened towards it. A God who knows everything about me and still loves me for who I am. It changes everything. I do a little activity with our students a lot. And I'll, I'll pull it out right now while the worship team is getting ready. Uh, one of the skills I like to ask our students to do or give them is to learn how to ask why. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Because really that's the most important thing. Jesus said the most important command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And he wants a love relationship with us. But a lot of times we want so desperately to be like other people and to fit in that we sometimes do things for the wrong reason, don't we? Even as adults. So sometimes I'll ask students, you know, why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you, you know, a lot of times for teenagers, there's a lot of temptations to to get drunk. And uh, you say, well, why why did you do that? Well, because I want to be cool. Well, why do I want to be cool? Because I want to fit in. Well, why do I want to fit in? Because I want to be like other people. Why do I want to be like other people? Because I want to be popular. Why do I want to be popular? I just keep asking why, why, why. What do you really want, okay? Well, I want, you know, attention. Well, why do I want attention? Ultimately, what do we all want in relationships? We want to be accepted and we want to be loved for who we are. And so one of the questions I love to ask, and I ask this in public schools, I say, who knows everything about you and still loves you and accepts you for who you are? Sometimes there's a long silence, (laughs) but you know what? The most common answer I hear from students in school, and this is encouraging to you parents, is my parents, my mom, my dad. They love me for who I am. I say, wow, that's awesome. Yeah, kind of like some of the students who gave their testimony. That's fantastic. God ordained the family to be the instrument with through which he would show his love. And so if you've grown up without a family or without a parent loving you, it's difficult. I could see why it would be really easy to not believe. But in schools, I love to hear other answers to that. And one of the more common answers is, is me. I love myself. And we live in a culture that is in, just infatuated with self-love, self-care. And I get it. A lot of kids have been hurt, a lot of people have been hurt, and they've been abused, and they've been taught that they're not to love themselves. And we need, in some ways, to love ourselves. And accept ourselves but the question is how do we do that do we love ourselves only when things are going good and when we've we've achieved things when people like us the gospel says that we were loved even while we were yet sinners christ died for us god loves us and accepts us for who we are and when we receive that love not only do we love ourselves but we love our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus never commanded us to love ourselves. He, commanded, he, he assumed it. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 said, no one ever uh, uh, you know, destroys their body or hates, hates their body. They nourish it and they cherish it. Love is a choice to protect and provide for someone else before yourself. We naturally love ourselves. And that's why the gospel says, love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because I have loved you that way. And I gave my life for you. I don't know where you're at, This morning, with your relationship with Jesus, I don't know where you're at with serving others and really getting serious about humility and unity and doing service over self. It's so radical; it would change the world. Jesus said that if we actually did this, the world would know that we are His. That we He would they would know that He we are uh, that He is Christ by our unity and by our love for one another. John chapter thirteen. It would it's supernatural. It's counterintuitive. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. You can't do it, though, until you receive God's love. And so my challenge to you this morning is to receive God's love for yourself and to really allow Him to become Lord. Let me finish by reading the last three verses. I used to think that it was just about, it was just for us that Jesus died. No. Look at what it says. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. Jesus set aside his own interests, not only for us, but ultimately for the glory of God, the father. We don't live for our own vain glory. We live for God's glory. What are you, what are you living for this morning? There's some, there's some, there's some, uh, there's some terror in these words or discomfort definitely because verses nine and 10 is not just talking about believers who are going to bow. It's talking about everybody. And so it says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. This is demonic as well, spiritual beings, people who refuse. The book of Revelation says there's people who are, their rocks will be falling on them, and it says that they will refuse to repent. I hope and pray that that is not any of you or our family members. But the whole purpose of all this is to the glory of God the Father. He is worthy of glory. We're going to close by singing a song called, I Speak the Name of Jesus. Because at that name, we sang this song at the Challenge Conference in Kansas City with 5,000 students. And it brought me to tears looking out amongst all these students because some of the things that we're going to name, that we're going to speak over them in the name of Jesus are very real. Anxiety, depression, fear. And so as we sing this song, I pray that you will um, genuinely take the words to heart and know that the power is not in ourselves. The power is in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you that you love us and accept us no matter what. And yet, at the same time, Lord, you came and you died and you rose again to show us, Lord, that you are the victory. You have power over death, over sin, over fear, anxiety, depression, whatever it is, God. I pray for my brothers and sisters, Lord, and the children here today. Lord, I ask God that they would know your love through their family, but ultimately through Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to speak the name of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.